All right, what's up, City Lines Church? Hey, before we jump in, will you just join me in welcoming our friends watching on Facebook? What's up, Facebook? How y'all doing today? Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Nathan. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. So excited that you're with us today as we are in part four of a series called Rebuild. And really, we're kind of talking about how do you rebuild the broken areas of your life? Maybe there's an area of your finances that need to be rebuilt. Maybe it's in your relationships that need to get rebuilt, or it's in your career. Or maybe after the pandemic, you're like, I need to rebuild my mental health, work through some anxiety and things like that. Well, whatever it is you're in the process of rebuilding as a church, we would just want to say we are cheerleading you, we're praying for you, let us know how we can come alongside of you in the season of rebuilding. In fact, I want to actually take a moment to say thank you for helping us actually physically rebuild our church. Uh, yesterday we had a church work day. I got some pictures up here of some of us kind of making some rounds. You know, here we're like picking up sticks, we're ripping out uh, weeds, and we're like, you know, laying down some mulch, and we're ripping out some roots and things like that. Probably if you've walked around the church, you could probably have seen some of the things that we were doing. And I just want to say thank you so much for all y'all that came out to help us make, yeah, just go ahead, give them a hand, all you guys that came out to help us with the church work day. Um, and one of the things that we learned is it really does take an entire team of people to make things happen, right? Because, you know, we have the folks that are out there working, but also the folks that are giving their time and their talents, but also their treasure. If you are a regular giver here at City Lions Church with your tithes and your offerings, I just want to say thank you so much. Because of your regular giving, we're able to kind of care for this building. This building is a gift, guys. We are able to not just bless all y'all in our church, but also the community as well. So I just want to say thank you so much for your generosity in your giving, because we were able to make a difference. And, and in fact, that's kind of what God's people do. Like when we gather together, we help rebuild. In fact, this is something that we've done for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, we're looking at one of those situations in the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 5 today. In fact, here's what's kind of fun. I didn't even share this with you guys yet, but I kind of have a special connection with the book of Nehemiah because it's actually my middle name. I'm Nithin. Nehemiah Thompson, and I got the name from my dad, whose name is Nehemiah, and, you know, whenever I read the book, I, it's always kind of fun because, I, you know, I always find some sort of new insight, some new kind of way of seeing this, so it's kind of fun for me to be able to share this with y'all, but if this is your first Sunday here with us, let me give you a quick review on what's been happening in the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is a Jewish man. He's living in a foreign city called Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire is in modern-day Iran, if you kind of want to get a sense of where it's at, and he starts to hear these stories about how the walls around Jerusalem, which is the house of God, have actually started to fall apart, and now the people are vulnerable to attack, and so Nehemiah is like, I got to go check this out for myself, so he gets in his four-wheel drive camel, and he drives all the way to Jerusalem. It's about a four-month-long journey, and when he finally gets there, he's like, it's worse than I thought. Here's what it says in chapter two. It says this, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild. Say rebuild, church. Rebuild. Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So this is a massive, massive undertaking. Because Nehemiah's got to rebuild the entire wall around the city of Jerusalem. Here's a picture of the wall. This actually was not built by Nehemiah. This was actually built by the Ottomans about a couple thousand years later. But you can kind of get a sense of the scale and the size. The walls around Jerusalem are over two and a half miles long. They're over 40 feet high. They're about eight feet thick. 
So this ain't just like a retainer wall in your backyard. This is a wall. This is a massive, massive building project. And so, but it's more than just a building project, right? It's not just about getting the walls up to kind of keep things safe. He's also trying to recapture the soul of a people. See, God's people have been shattered and they've been scattered all over the world. And so without the walls, without the temple now being kind of vulnerable, they're in this place where they're not sure who they are as a people. They're not sure of their identity. And so literally the rebuilding of the wall is literally a rebuilding of a people. And so Nehemiah is taking that on himself. And so they are building no matter what. In fact, we talked about the critics that are coming from the outside throwing some insults at them. We talked about Sambalot and Tobiah, right? You know, and, and they're starting to throw some you know, wicked shade towards Nehemiah and the Jews. Like Tobiah's got this comment. He's like, yo, if, we, if you get a fox on that wall, it's going to fall apart. And it's like, man, that, that, that insult's been recorded for thousands of years, but literally, these people are going after God's people, but God's people keep going. They keep rebuilding, brick by brick, on mortar, on mortar. But here's where we're getting to today. They're going to experience probably the greatest threat to this project. This threat is greater than anything from the outside. In fact, this threat has the potential of causing an implosion. And what is that threat? In fact, it's a threat that we need to be aware of today for us. So let's go ahead and take a look at Nehemiah chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It says this, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. So you know it's not just a problem when it's just the men that are raising the complaint. It's the men and their wives. Okay, they are like, hey, we've got a problem here. And here's the problem. We've got these large families. We can barely afford to buy grain for them to eat. Now, last week we talked about who are the folks that are building this wall. It's not the contractors, it's not the plumbers, it's not the dudes that are hanging the drywall, it's everybody. you got the goldsmiths, you've got the perfume makers, you've got the merchants, you've got the guys that work at Starbucks. All these folks are working on building this wall. But the problem is, if you're working and building a wall, guess what you're not doing? Making a salary. You're not making perfume, you're not making drinks, you're not doing any of that other stuff that you're supposed to do to kind of pay the bills. Therefore, they're like, yo, Nehemiah, we want to be a part of this, but we can barely make money, make ends meet. But here's where they're saying the problem is. The problem isn't the Sambalots and the Tobias on the outside, it's our own who? Say it out loud, everybody. It's other Jews. They're actually the ones that are causing this oppression. So that's one group. They're like, hey, we can barely afford to buy food to feed our whole families. Then there's another group where things are getting a little bit worse. Let's keep reading the passage. It says this. It says, Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So there's actually also a famine going on during this building project. Like, you know, there's always challenges when you're trying to rebuild something for God in your life, right? So there's this famine that's going on, and as this famine is going on, they're like, okay, we, not only have we run out of money to pay for grain, we actually have to mortgage our fields. We got to actually mortgage our vineyards so it's, it's no longer ours anymore. You see, when God's people first came into the promised land, each of them were given an allotment of land. They said, this is your family land, uh, this land goes to Michael, and this land goes to Josh, and, and this land goes to, to Ben. This is your land, and you guys keep it throughout generations. But they are so hard-pressed that right now they're like, we got to sell this. Like, we got we to be able to feed our family. So things are getting pretty bad. But then there's another group where things are even worse. Let's check this out. It says, still others were saying, 
We've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So they've already mortgaged their stuff. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, go to the next slide, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So in our world, you know, if you buy a car and you can't make the car payments anymore, the repo man comes and he takes your car, okay? If you buy a house and you can't make mortgage payments anymore, the bank comes and they foreclose. In the ancient world, if you can't pay your taxes, if you can't pay off your credit card in time, they take your kids. They take your kids and they put them to work until you can pay off your entire debt. So essentially, God's people are being sold into slavery. But here's the worst part about it. The worst part about it is they're being sold into slavery not by the pagans, not by those that are the godless people. They're actually being sold into slavery by God's people, the nobles and the rich. They're exploiting the poor. They're exploiting the powerless. And what they're doing is they're actually saying, you know what, we, we can kind of handle this sin, but you know, why, don't, why don't we go ahead and we'll buy your sons, we'll buy your daughters, We'll put them to work. It's ironic that at Passover, these folks are going to be celebrating that God's delivered us from Egypt. Isn't that great? Praise God. While they're enslaving their own people. So as you can see, this is a situation that's getting pretty bad. Because God's people are the ones preying on the helpless and the vulnerable. I love what the novelist Pearl Buck said. She says, the test of a civilization is the way that it cares for its helpless members. So already God's people are failing that test. See, last week we looked at the threat on the outside. We were talking about how, you know, Sambalot and Tobiah and and all these kind of pagan nations are coming against God's people. But there is a threat that is more dangerous than that's coming from the outside in. This threat actually divides and destroys churches. It divides and destroys families. It's actually the number one reason why missionaries leave the mission field and never go back. And it's a word that many of us probably know, and we probably don't like, enjoy talking about it, and it's the word conflict. Say conflict, church. Conflict. Conflict Conflict in Latin literally means this. Con means come together. Flict, where we get the word inflict, means to strike. It's kind of a good picture of it, right? When we come together, there's a striking that happens. And the striking can be positive, like, you know, you sharpen someone when you strike them, like when you're sharpening like a knife or a sword or something, or we can cause harm. We can inflict pain. We can inflict wounds. And that is is something that kind of happens. Now, conflict can do two things. It can either be a catalyst for growth. Because what conflict does, it actually reveals maybe blind spots in our life, areas that we need to grow in, areas that we need to be uh, more aware of. Like maybe you've had that conversation, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Like how do people perceive me? Conflict enables us to see some of those things. But conflict handled poorly can also be disastrous. It can actually blow everything up. It can destroy so many things. And I know maybe some of you are thinking this, Pastor Nathan, though, we all are Christians. Christians don't have conflict. You know, we family, we love each other, right? Like, you know, in fact, conflict's probably a negative thing. We try to avoid that stuff as much as possible. But here's the thing. Uh, even if you're a follower of Jesus, even if we're the family of God, families fight, don't they? And whether we like it or not, sometimes whether we admit it or not, 
you and I will experience conflict. You know, maybe you've had this experience when you're at work and you're working on a project and one of the colleague, your colleagues sends this email to you, very critical, but they CC your boss and they CC your team on it. And you're like, that jerk, I can't believe they did that. And so you're going and you're talking to your other team members and you're telling everyone else, but you don't talk to that other person because, you know, you just don't want to deal with them and they're a jerk anyway. Conflict. I'm feeling the conflict, right? Or maybe there's a conflict with your neighbors, like so you're not really getting along. Maybe you're, it's about your, you know, where, you know, where the property line is, or like you know, your city group's always coming over, and they're parking on their driveway and stuff, and they're like, what the heck? And you're thinking it's not a big deal until all of a sudden someone comes over and serves you with some papers, and you're being sued by your neighbor, and you're like, what, what the heck? Conflict. And maybe some of you are like, you know, Nathan, I, I think I'm good. Like, I don't have any issues of conflict and anything like that. Well, if you wonder if conflicts come your way, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold up one of your hands and just put two fingers up like this. All right, all across. If you're watching online, do the same thing. And then hold out your wrist and put it at the edge of your wrist. And if you feel a thumping there, that means conflict is coming your way. <laughs> All you need to be is a human being living on planet Earth and to know that conflict is coming. And, you know, as human beings, there's really four ways we respond to conflict. It's fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Let's kind of break that down a little bit. First, you have the fight response, right? So this is where you are, you just get aggressive. Like someone comes at you, you come after them, right? Oh, I can't believe Bill posted that on Facebook, man. He's getting all political. Well, I'm going to get political on him, and I'm going to give him a post, and I'm going to rip him apart. You know, that's the kind of like the fight response. Like it's aggressive. We just want to go after them. The other response is flight. That's where we're like, we just want to get away from the situation because we just, you know, we don't want to be a part of it, you know? It's like, man, my wife and I were having this fight, but, you know, I, I can't handle this anymore. I'm just going to leave the room. And that'll make things better. I just can't deal with it, right? The third response is we freeze. This is where we get so emotionally flooded that we don't even know how to respond to the situation. We're unable to make any decisions. We're kind of stuck there. You know, maybe you had a situation where you know, I was given this presentation at work and, and someone was asking these questions and they were really aggressive about the questions and, and I didn't know how to answer them and I kind of shut down because I froze. And the final one is we'll fawn. Fawning is when you're in a situation where you need to actually appease the person that's coming after you. So if you're in a conflict and you've got a fighter and he's coming after you and you're a fawner, you're going to be like, how can I make this person go away? How, how, can, I, how can I make you happy? You know, and maintain the peace. Maybe you've had this happen where you're in a meeting and you're like, you know, I don't agree with where we're going, but I don't want to. I don't want to voice my opinion because then we're gonna have to talk about it. Maybe people will be upset with me, and and I really, I, maybe I'll just just keep it going, keep it going. You know, I'll, I'll peace, I'll, I'll fawn, or maybe we do a combination of all these things because these are very human ways that we respond to conflict in our default setting. The problem is, is if we end up going to one of these and staying in one of these areas, we actually end up maintaining a false peace, a false reconciliation. Let me give you an example. So a couple of years ago, um, I was at a wedding with a buddy of mine, we, and we were both working for the same organization. And so, you know, we're sitting at the table together, you know, it's a wedding, so there, there's talking and laughing and merrymaking and all that kind of stuff, you know, wedding stuff. And uh, he gets, I noticed that his phone goes on, and you know, you can kind of see the person who's calling, and I noticed it was our boss. I'm like, oh. My boss is calling, and my friend just hit silent because, you know, he can't talk. Like, you know, it's a wedding, and there's all that stuff going on. It's loud. So, you know, I see my boss the next day, and we're kind of chatting, catching up, uh, you know, on the weekend. And, and I go, oh, yeah, I saw that you called Rick. And, uh, yeah, we were at the wedding, so, you know, he probably couldn't talk. And so, you know, my boss is like, okay, whatever. Well, the next day, I go to work thinking, you know, normal thing. He calls me into his office. I was like, huh, that's kind of odd. 
So I go into his office, and he's sitting behind like this big desk. And you know when you walk into a room and you just get a vibe? You're like, ugh, something doesn't feel right here. So I walk in, and he's sitting behind his desk, and I, I sit in front of his desk. And then all of a sudden, he starts laying into me. I can't believe you are so disloyal. Who do you think you are? Talking behind my back, mocking me with Rick. You know, I'm trying to call him about some important things, and, and you can't even give him the courtesy to let him know to call me back. I can't believe you would do this. And literally, he's just going off. The nostrils are flared. The spit's coming out of his mouth. And I'm like, oh my gosh. In that moment, I wanted to get out of that room. I just, how do I get out of here? Where are the exits, right? But I didn't even know how to respond. I was frozen. I literally didn't know what to think. I couldn't process my emotions. And when he was done with his tirade, I said, you were absolutely right. I am so, so sorry. Uh, you know, I, I should have had Rick call you back. I should have called you. I, I can't believe that. I am so, so sorry. And it felt like we smoothed things over. But it was a false piece. Because the entire time I was working in that organization, I was stepping on eggshells with him. He was so thin-skinned and insecure, I was afraid of, okay, I have to make sure I say it a certain way, and the way I say it's got to be like this so he can handle it, so he can hear it, and eventually we weren't able to fulfill the mission of our organization, of our company. And one of the things I realized is the way I handle conflict is kind of the way our family handles conflict. See, so many of us, our default in how we handle conflict is what we saw our mom and dad do. So like in our home, you know, one of us would blow up and there'd be an explosion. And then we would just pretend it never happened. So we would just kind of go on, pretend nothing happened. But again, it was a false peace. You're like, uh, is this person okay? Are they going to blow up again? I don't even know. See, I think many of us, our default response is something like this. And the problem is, is that we haven't learned to handle conflict the way the family of God is called to handle conflict. And so Nehemiah is actually going to show us How do we handle conflict when it comes up? You know, there's lots of scriptures that talk about conflict, Matthew 18, Matthew 5, but we're going to take a look at how Nehemiah handles the conflict that comes up that threatens to implode where he's at. But before we do that, I just want to say something and make something really, really clear. There is is a difference between conflict that is just a normal part of life and conflict that borders on abuse or is abuse. If you're in a situation where you are fearing for your life, for your safety, of you or your kids, you need to get out of that situation. No matter what kind of conflict resolution, that will not work. The most loving thing you can do with someone who's abusing you, the most loving thing you can do is you call the police, you get them arrested, and get them out of your house. If any of you are in a situation like that today, or if you're watching online, please get a hold of our leadership, because we don't want you to stay in that place that's unsafe. Okay? If it's conflict that's in good faith, these principles work. But if it's an abusive situation, get out of there. Because we want you to be safe. And I think that's a biblical way of looking at it. So, but if it's a run-of-the-mill kind of conflict situation that comes up, Nehemiah is going to show us some ways that we can kind of go through that conflict. The first is this, to pause and process. Pause and process. Let's take a look at Nehemiah, what he says in verse 6. He says this, When I heard their outcry and these charges... I was very angry, and I posted about it on Facebook. Is that, sorry, I must be looking at a different version. No, it says, let's all say this last line together. I pondered them in my mind. I pondered them in my mind. You know, last week, we kind of learned that Nehemiah is a passionate dude, right? 
Like, remember when those enemies were coming after him, he prays that prayer. God, would you smoke my enemies, man? Would you take them out? Like, he's like praying that prayer. He's got all this anger. He's got all this, like, you know, he kind of prays with swagger a little bit. And so we know that Nehemiah is this passionate guy. He, he's quick to anger. He's so angry about what he's hearing. But I want you to notice what he does with his anger. He doesn't go to Facebook right away. He doesn't send a sarcastic tweet or make any sarcastic remarks. It says that he ponders the situation. He takes a moment to pause, to pray, to reflect, to kind of sort out what's going on in his heart. See, I think so much of our conflict resolution happens as a reaction that we never take the time to actually reflect and go, what's really going on here? There's a Canadian pastor named Charles Stone, and he's actually done a lot of research on just kind of the role of, of, of the brain and spiritual formation. And so he's kind of been teaching me a lot of like how, how our minds work, especially in areas of conflict, especially around this idea of the anatomy of our emotional responses. So check this out here. There's a chart here. So for instance, the first thing that usually happens in a conflict situation is there's a stimulus. Someone says something. Like for Nehemiah, he hears all of this injustice that's happening. And all of a sudden, he's getting the stimulus, and for some of us, it could be just anxiety, it could be internal, but after he gets the stimulus, there is an unconscious emotion that comes next. Now, the unconscious emotion is basically the physiological stuff that kind of happens. So, Nehemiah's body is sending signals to his mind. So everything from his pupils are dilating, his, maybe he's getting sweaty palms, his muscles are tensing up, his digestion is kind of pausing in that moment. So all these physiological responses are kind of going up to his brain, and now he has a feeling, which is a conscious emotion, which is anger. And he's like, I am so angry right now at what I'm hearing. It is making me rage. And so Nehemiah, what he does is he takes some time to think. He ponders what is going on. He starts to think clearly about what's going on, and then he makes a response. See, this is where we need to be careful, because I think so many of us, by the way, all this happens in less than a second. So literally, all of this is happening in less than a second. A lot of times what we do is we go from feeling to response. It's like, I'm mad at my kid, so I'm going to yell at my kid. You know, I'm mad at my friend, so I'm going to send him a text and tell him about it. But we never take the time to actually clarify what's going on. What am I mad about? What do I need to actually do about it? And so, guys, I think so much of our conflict happens right here. And so much could be eliminated if we just take the time to pause, to reflect, to process, to think about what's going on. A couple months ago, um, I was preaching a message, and I kind of shared with you some questions to ask because you're kind of clarifying what's going on here. And it's these four questions here. What makes you sad? What makes you mad? What makes you glad? And what makes you anxious? And maybe you talk this through with a friend or you journal about it, but as you kind of work through kind of what's going on internally, this will hopefully help you get to step number two, which is to clarify reality. This is a really important step here. In fact, look how Nehemiah does this in this next verse. He says this, so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. So, so Nehemiah is now putting on his investigation app. So he's going around and going, okay, I found some of our folks that were sold, and they were being sold, you know, we actually bought them back from the pagans. We bought them back from, from the folks that aren't part of our tribe. So clearly that's happening, is what Nehemiah is saying. And then he says this, now you're selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. So he's like, I followed the money. What the money told me was, is they actually bought these folks from all y'all, God's people, the nobles. Y'all should know better than that. And he says, 
here's, here's how they respond. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. If you're a parent, you ever catch your kid in a lie? Catch him doing something wrong? And what do they got to say? Nothing. Nothing. That's exactly what's happening here. These nobles know they were in the wrong. They get called out because Nehemiah has clarified reality. He's like, guys, what you're doing, it's wrong. And you guys should know that. See, once we kind of sort things out within, we, we actually need to sort out reality. What's fake news versus what's real? What's really going on versus what I think is going on? What's the situation versus my perception? I mean, maybe you had this happen to you where you're kind of scrolling through Instagram or Facebook and all your friends are all hanging out and you're like, where am I in this picture? And all of a sudden you get really upset and, and then maybe you send out a sarcastic text message to your friends like, hey guys, looks like you're having a fun party. Where's my invite or something like that? But what if you kind of paused and processed and maybe you sent out a text that said, hey, I saw you guys were, you know, were, were hanging out at uh, Friday's. What's going on? It's like, oh, yeah, we were just, we just were all hanging out together and we just decided to go and we, we shot you a text. Did you get it? And you're like, oh, well, I guess I missed it. See, when you respond with curiosity, you're not making assumptions, but you're actually starting to kind of get a sense of what's going on in this situation. What am I missing? Or maybe you've had this happen where maybe one of your coworkers or someone at church, maybe they walk right by you without saying hi. And you're like, what's their problem? Are they mad at me? I didn't do anything to them. And, and you're kind of all of a sudden creating this story in your head of what they did to you and, and maybe what you did to them and how unfair it is. And all of a sudden, you've got this whole story that could be like a, a movie by the time you're done playing it out in your head. But maybe you circle back with them and say, hey, like, I noticed at church you seem kind of off. What's going on? Yeah, my dad's sick. He's not doing well. and It's just really, I can't stop thinking about it. And all of a sudden, rather than accusing them, you've developed curiosity about why is this happening? Why are they responding the way they are? Because once you're able to kind of define reality, what's real versus perception, that's when you can do what Nehemiah did next, which was involve the right people. See, up to this point, if we can kind of get better at these kind of skills, we could probably eliminate 50% of the conflict that we experience in our lives. But notice that Nehemiah, once he gets the information, once he finds out what's going on, he doesn't send out a blanket text message kind of like talking about how some people are doing this. What he does is he actually goes to the people and says he accused the nobles and the officials. He's like, I'm just going to go right to the source. You guys are the issue. We need to talk about it. And I feel like when it comes to churches, most churches, this is where we probably struggle with the most. Rather than going directly to the person, what we'll do is we'll go kind of around them, right? Because let's be honest, conflict is stressful, right? Like all of a sudden our anxiety is going up, our stress is going up, and actually scientists actually say when all this happens, there's a term that happens to us. It's a technical term. It's called we get dumber. So we actually start to make bad decisions when all of our anxiety and stress is up. And so what we end up doing is we say, okay, well, well, I have a conflict with Brandon here, so I'm going to talk to Michael about it. Because, you know, Michael, you really need to know that Brandon's kind of a punk. And, you know, Keith, you should also be aware of this as well. And then all of a sudden, I'm talking to everyone except for Brandon about it. And there's actually a name for this in family systems theory. It's called triangulation. Now, triangulation is both healthy. There's, there's two sides. So there's a healthy side to it and an unhealthy side to it. The unhealthy side is when I'm kind of talking to Brandon about, uh, talking to everyone else about the, the conflict I have with Brandon because I'm afraid to have that conflict conversation with him. It's awkward. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to change our friendship. But there is a healthy 
triangulation. Like a couple years ago when my wife and I were kind of struggling in our marriage, we actually went to a Christian counselor. And we triangulated him into our situation so that he could actually help us in kind of coming, you know, in actually working through our issues and kind of getting healthy. That's why I'm so grateful for Christian counselors and counseling because that's such a gift to the church, to the body of Christ. The thing is, when we go to triangulation in an unhealthy way, it means we don't want to take responsibility for our part in the situation. We would much rather blame. We'd much rather tear other people down. We'd much rather go on the attack. And then we feel good, but we've kept the false peace up. We haven't done the work to actually get to real, authentic peace. But if you're having a conversation with someone, it's like, hey, listen, can you help me process this? Can you help me pray through this and clarify this? Come up with a plan? And that brings us to the next step that Nehemiah does, which is commit to action. Now, Nehemiah doesn't just yell at the nobles and talk about how terrible they are. He actually says, we got to do something different. So here's the plan he comes up. He says this, let us stop charging interest Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses. So he's like, guys, let's stop charging interest for the folks that are struggling right now. And goes on to say this, and also the interest you're charging them, 1% of the money, which, let me break this out a little bit. This isn't like just a 1% blanket, because, you know, that doesn't sound like too bad. It's 1% a month. 12% annually, they're getting charged. So 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So basically, Nehemiah's like, give it back. You took their land, give their land back. Give them back their olive groves, their houses, give it back. You charged them interest, give back the interest. Stop stealing from your own people. And then Nehemiah does kind of this, this kind of cool thing. Or, you know, he says this, he says, I also shook the folds of my robe, and in this way, this way may God shake out of their houses and possessions. Anyone who does not keep the promise, so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. So in the ancient world, like, you know, you had these robes, and so, like, this kind of be where the pockets were. So Nehemiah is like, all right, I'm just going to take out everything out of my pocket, shake it out. If you don't keep your word, if you don't give back what you're supposed to give back, if you don't follow through, may God shake you out. You know what that's called? Accountability. With every plan, there's got to be an accountability piece to it. And he's saying, before God, are you going to be accountable? Actually, I skipped a verse here. In verse 12, it says this. It says that we will give back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. So it sounds like the nobles are actually saying, hey, we're going to do this. You know, one of the things I like to think about when preaching and when I'm thinking about is what is the next step? Oftentimes we're, we're in a conflict, we get so flooded with emotion because we haven't paused and processed it. But there's actually a next step we can take. There's actually a plan of action that you can move to. So what would that next step be? Maybe for some of you, you need to get your cell phone out and text someone that you're in conflict with and say, hey, can we talk? And maybe, maybe you set something up in a week. That way it gives, it gives you time to pause and to, to process and to kind of go through the different steps. But who is it that you're in conflict with? Maybe you need to start taking steps towards a resolution because one of the things that the Bible and Nehemiah actually shows us that we need to kind of move towards is to ultimately live at peace. It's number five, to live at peace. See, we find out later that while all this is going on, that Nehemiah's got this promotion. He's now the governor. He's now the governor of the area. And you're thinking, all right, Nehemiah, you're the governor now. you got all the power now. Like, how are you going to use that power? And one of the things that we find is that Nehemiah actually uses his power for the benefit of all the people, not just for some of the people, but for all the people. And look what he says here 
in verse 17 says this, Further, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. So what does Nehemiah do? He has a potluck. He's like, why don't you all come on over? Come on over and eat, and we'll, we'll hang out. And it says 150 Jews and officials, but this is probably just the men. So when you actually look at the menu, it's for a lot more people than just 150. Let's, let's take a look at this menu. It says, each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. So this is quite the spread. You've got like some oxtail here, which is good. You've got lamb chops. You've got like turkey meatballs and all this other awesome stuff there. And then he made a, he made a deal with New Trail, and now they've got these kegs that are coming out. I mean, man, this is quite the spread. This is enough for about six, 700 people that's all coming out of Nehemiah's pockets. Because Nehemiah's like, listen, I, I, I want to make sure that our people are cared for. But you've got to ask, where is Nehemiah getting the money for this? I, I, I mean, as a governor, like, doesn't he have like, a lot of like, input? Well, look what it says here in verse 18. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. So the food allotment is kind of a tax. So the people would get this tax, would be taxed so that the governor would have more food. And so Nehemiah is like, no, we're not doing that anymore. I'm going to empty myself of all that I got so that our people can be fed. So our people can not just survive, but they can also thrive. See, what Nehemiah is doing, remember, he's not just building a physical wall, he's rebuilding a people. And in this moment... He's actually made it so they can actually live in peace, live in what's known as shalom. This, this would almost be like, like, you know, if Jeff Bezos and Richard Brand said, you know what, we're going to cut the space program thing we're doing so we can feed all the poor. Be, imagine if they could do that, you know, with a billion dollars, right? That's what Nehemiah is doing here. And when he talks about this idea of shalom, it's this idea of peace, but it's holistic peace. It's economic peace. It's relational peace. It's, it's peace with, with our neighbors and everyone around us. And see, that's what Nehemiah is trying to cultivate. Because if there's peace within, then we can keep moving forward with the project that God has for us. And guys, I just want to challenge you here. When we have those issues with conflict, it's awkward, isn't it? It's going to mean we're going to have to have an awkward conversation. It's going to mean we have to learn how to manage our anxiety and our stress levels. It's not easy. But also, and I think this is what keeps many of us from, from kind of entering into conflict, is we don't always have control over the outcome. It could end well. You and that person could, could come back into, into community, into relationship. It could also end badly. It could actually end where the way you live at peace with someone is you actually set really clear boundaries on how you interact with each other and what you do. And that's the challenge of conflict. But here's the thing. Jesus really is our model for how we handle conflict. Jesus is the one who saw that there was conflict between us and God. And he came and he actually created a bridge so that we could actually have a relationship with God. And he paid a price. There was a sacrifice he paid so we could have salvation. In the same way, maybe God is calling you to make a sacrifice in that conflict. Maybe you're the one that's got to empty yourself out of your pride take ownership of your part in the conflict, take ownership of what you did wrong, and move forward in humility and say, I'm sorry. You, you hurt me, and, and it was really painful, 
but I also know this is the part that I'm going to own. I did this. Can we, again, move to a place where we could live at peace? In, in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And uh, Joel, one of our elders, is going to come up and lead us in this time of communion. And part of communion is it's a moment to kind of pause and reflect. It's actually built into the process of communion. Where we actually pause and we reflect and say, God, are we good? God, is there conflict between you and I that I need to confess and turn away from? But then there's another part of it where we need to say, God, am I good with other folks? Am I good with folks in the body of Jesus? Am am I good with, with folks in my community? So here's what we're going to do is we kind of enter into this time of communion that Joel is going to walk us through, is we're actually going to take a moment to pause, to reflect, and maybe answer this question, who do I need to live at peace with? We can only do our part in dealing with conflict. And that's the part that God's calling you, to, you and I to do. It may not be fixed. It may not go the way you want. But that's okay. Your job is to do your part. What can I do to, to move towards living at peace? What does that look like? And so as we take communion together, I pray that God would bring up, if there's any relationships that need mending, if there's false pieces that you're living in that you need to get out of, it's time to get out of that. And like I said earlier, if there's an abuse situation that you're involved in, I know God's telling you to get out of that situation. And let us know in our leadership because we want to help you walk out of that. So as we enter this time of pausing and reflecting, who do we need to live in peace with right now? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so grateful for your sacrifice as we talk about communion, as we enter into this together. Lord, um, I just am aware of just how broken I am how much I fall short, how there's so much I don't know. So Father, in the midst of my um, lack of knowledge, in the midst of my brokenness, Lord, you've came and you've died for me. And so Father, in this room and those watching online right now, we're broken people. And so as we come to this table of broken bread and poured out wine, God, would you help us in our brokenness? Let us feed others as we pour our lives out we be vessels of hope and healing. Father, we need you. We're helpless without you. Would you come now and meet us in this place in Jesus' name?